we are going to be, be uh, beginning a brand new three-part sermon series. No, I'm not going to be preaching the entire Gospel of John in three sermons. I wouldn't do that to myself. No, it's going to take me three sermons just to get through chapter one of John's Gospel. So this sermon series is a little bit different. We're just going to be looking at the first chapter. But here is my goal with this sermon series. is I want us to take a thorough, a deep dive to try to fully appreciate this Gospel that John wrote. For the purpose of, I want you to fall in love with this gospel, with this first chapter, and you want to just dive on in and keep reading it. That's my goal, is after the sermon series, you, are, you think to yourself, I want to keep reading that book. I want to keep studying that book, and you'll dive in in your own personal study. So for the next three weeks, you're going to get me up here nerding out about the gospel of John and dragging you along with me, and we're going to have a good time. Let's just go ahead and read that scripture together. So if you have your Bible, Gospel of John, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first four verses here. But let's just settle ourselves into this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Ignore the flickering lights. <laughs> we have all the light we need in this text, right? So these words, this opening words, are actually going to take a lot of pressure off of me as your preacher, the teacher this morning, because you know, a lot of what, what ministers try to do is we try to squeeze all we can out of a text, like an orange, getting juice out of it. We just want to get everything we possibly can, but I cannot give it all to you. <laughs> There's just too much. There's too much goodness here. And so what today is going to be about is a top view, top level view of what's happening in these opening verses of John's gospel. So let me just outline it for you, what we're going to look at today. Verses 1 through 4, the verses we just read, they're going to make a claim. And it's a pretty radical claim. Maybe you didn't pick up on it. Maybe you don't realize the significance of that claim. But it made a pretty radical claim there. Then we're going to look at verses 5 through 11, which are the, widely reject, the wide rejection of that claim. In fact, John actually says there's really only two ways that you can reject Jesus as the Christ. So we're going to look at that, and then we'll look at the last section, verses 12 through 14, which is going to give us an answer to the rejection of the radical claim. That's what we're going to do today. So let's just dive right in, and let's talk about that radical claim made in the first four verses of John's gospel. And it's pretty famous. You probably have read this before. It's all about the word, right? What is the word? And so if I was to just break down using these verses, using John's chapter here, to define to you what the word is, it goes something like this. We know that I have to turn my clicker on. The next thing we know is that the word is a person. It uses that indicator, he. So the word is some kind of embodiment of a person, he. Second thing we know from this passage is the word is a not just a regular person, it's a divine person. There's some kind of power in this person. The Word was God. 
The third thing we know about the word from this section, the word is not just a divine person, it's an uncreated divine person. All things were made through him. So he, this divine person, is the filter in which nothing was, and then they pass through him and everything in all creation was. Next thing we know about the word is that he, the word, is the source of all life. In him was life. And then the last thing we know about the word, just looking at this section, go down to verse 14, that this divine, uncreated person is Jesus. Verse 14, the word became flesh. Now we could spend the rest of the series, we could spend the rest of this year breaking down those five claims. But all of that to say, I want to look at the central issue of John's gospel. And while John is going to spend a lot of time talking about the divinity of Jesus. That's not his main claim here at the opening chapter. And while John is going to talk a lot about the person of Jesus, that also is not the main claim John is trying to make in these opening verses. So what is the main claim? What is this radical claim? And it's all about this word, word. (laughs) It's all about the word. That is John's main point. Look look how repetitive it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a very strategic Greek word that John uses here. Many of you might be familiar with it. It is the word logos. So you could just plug and play. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. And so What we know is that John chose a word. He chose the word logos because there is a lot of philosophical, a lot of cultural, a lot of social weight behind that little word there. And in order for you to fully appreciate the radicalness of this claim, we're going to need to spend some time this morning unloading some of the weight off of this word. Why did John choose the word logos? Well, let's unpack it just for a second. The Greek philosophers, which is the main thinking force in the world in this century, in this time of human existence when John is thinking and writing this about Jesus. So the Greek philosophers, they would look at nature, they'd look outside their windows, and they saw order. They saw harmony. They saw a balance in all of the universe. And so they believed, well, there must be some kind of cosmic divine principle that holds everything together. And they would call that principle the logos. They, they would use the same Greek word to define all of the order in the universe. In fact, you could go to the Britannica and you look up logos, it's going to say this, it's an active, rational, and spiritual principle that permeated all reality. They, the Greeks, they called the Logos providence, nature, God, and the soul of the universe. In other words, the Greeks, they observed the abundance of order that they found outside. They saw how the sun and the moon were on a regular rotation. They experienced the pattern of the seasons. They observed as the human experience seems to go through the same aging process with every single human. They they felt the temperature change, and they thought, hmm, there must be some kind of principle here 
something we can't see, some kind of divine structure that keeps the world operating the way that it does. And they called that thing the Logos. Now, this can get very abstract very quick. <laughs> In fact, I already see some of you like a philosophy lesson. Okay, you know, thank you for putting me to sleep. I'll just close my eyes now. So it's important for us to understand the Logos in order to understand this text. So to help us understand it, I want to talk to you about my favorite pastime, building Legos. I didn't misspell Legos. We're talking about Logos, but Legos. We're talking about Legos for a second. This is me and my little sister. Um, she came over with my mom for Thanksgiving, and the first thing we did uh, was we went to Target. This is the, um, the trench run in Star Wars, um, and so we got this off the shelf. We opened it up. We spent an afternoon building this together. It's in my office. It's awesome. I love Legos. I love them. I'll tell you why I love them. They bring, you buy it off the shelf or they'll deliver it to you, and it's just this box, and you open up that box, and it's just a bunch of loose pieces of colorful plastic. That's all it is. Like, you could gather all of those pieces of plastic together in your hand, and they are absolutely worthless. They're just worthless. Like, you could, like, I could go to you with all this plastic and say, hey, how much would you buy this off of me? And you would look at me like I'm crazy. They, they mean nothing whenever they're all dis disheveled and how they come in the box. And you want to know what else is in this box of colorful, loose pieces of plastic. There's an instruction manual. And if you open up that instruction manual, guess what you're going to find inside of it? You guessed it, the logos. The logos, right? The instruction manual tells me what this box of loose plastic is supposed to be. It tells me what it was designed to be. You see, the word logos doesn't just translate equally to the word word. It doesn't just mean word. It actually, in, if you translate the word, it means reason or purpose or meaning. You can think of like logic. In fact, this is where we get our word logic from. It's from this word logos. So the direction, this instruction manual, it tells me what the, all of these loose pieces of plastic are supposed to do, what they're supposed to be. It gives me the reason for their existence. Like, this is what this is made for. Don't put that piece over there. No, 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 wait until you install that piece. No, all of these loose pieces that you have at the end, you didn't do anything wrong. Those are supposed to be there, right? It tells you exactly what this thing is supposed to be. And the directions, they actually encourage me to align my use of the Lego pieces with their purpose. And if I don't align my use of the Lego pieces with their purpose, I'm not going to get the end result that I'm hoping to get. Logos. And so the Greeks, they wondered, hmm, okay, what if the universe has a Logos? Like, what if there is a reason to life that you could align yourself with? And if you don't align yourself with that, that portion, then you are not going to get the end results that you are hoping to achieve. And so the Greeks, in essence, believed in what we call absolute truth. They believed that there is some kind of universal truth out there, and you can align yourself with it, and your life will have meaning and purpose and direction. Now, Greeks are just like us. 
And there's a whole bunch of humans that had different ideas of how we achieved that. So, for example, you had the Greek Stoics who believed in this thing called fate. And so they believed that all of the universe is just this predetermined set of things that happen. And you just have to take the punches as they come. You have to live a life of self-control, a life of virtue despite of it. And if you can do that, you can strong arm your way to purpose and meaning. That's what the Stoics believed. Other Greeks believed, well, no, our purpose is to take care of the universe itself so we can maintain it for the people coming after us. Still others, called the Epicureans, they believe that no, life is all about you, that it was designed around you, that you need to pull all the meaning you can out of this life and center it around you. So you had everybody who had all of their different views of what it means to align themselves with the ultimate reality. These were the leading thoughts. And then John comes and rips open the fabric of possibility. You see, before John wrote these words to paper, the leading idea in philosophy was that absolute truth, your ultimate reality, is this impersonal nature that you have to align yourself with. It's this ultimate reality that you can align yourself with, with all these different things. It's impersonal, so you have to strong arm it. You have to sum it up inside of you. You have to um, contemplate your way to it, but you can eventually get there. And then John comes on the scene with all of that history behind the word logos, and he confirms the majority of it, at least. He says, yeah, guys, you're actually right. There is an ultimate reality. Yes, you can actually align yourself with that reality, but the part that you're missing is that ultimate reality is not a divine principle. It's a divine person. And that person can be known and can be loved, not deduced through contemplation, not summed up from inside of you because you're so amazing and so virtuous. The Logos, according to John, is a divine person to be known and to be loved. And then, and only then, are we aligned with the ultimate reality. Historian Bradley Bursa says it this way. The philosophical God, right? The Logos for the Greeks, the one we've been talking about, uh, referred to the eternal rationality of being. This logos, for the Greeks, is isolated, pure being or pure rationality. However, in being wed to the biblical image of God in the light of faith, logos is now no longer pure thought or thinking thought or the eternal mathematics of the universe, but it's also agape, the power of creative love. Here's something that blew my mind whenever I really thought about this. Today, we talk about this thing, another weighted phrase called human rights, right? The idea that every human being has dignity. That the seed of that idea, that every person can align themselves with an ultimate reality, that they can live out their purpose and meaning, that that's available to everybody. The seed to human rights was born when John wrote this in his gospel. The world had never heard or seen something like this before. It's a reinterpretation of ultimate reality. 
But see, when John wrote these words to paper, he wasn't trying to change the history of human thought. No, instead, what he was trying to do was get rid of this idea that to be on the side of truth, you have to be a philosopher and think of all these high thoughts, or you have to be a stoic and discipline yourself and live a life of virtue because only a very select, elite group of people can do those things. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. Because if ultimate reality is not a principle, it is a person that could be known and loved. Everybody can do that. Everybody has access to that. And that's the claim. And wow, what a bold and new claim for this world to hear. But while it was widely influential and accepted by some, the majority of people rejected it. And now let's move to the second section of our text, the rejection of that bold claim. We're going to read verse 5, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 10 just to keep the idea cohesive. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not even receive him. This tells us that there is a widespread rejection of Jesus as Lord, as Jesus as the alignment of the ultimate reality, that you can actually have a relationship with this Jesus and find meaning and purpose. Many people rejected that, but what's interesting, and maybe you missed it, and that's okay because we're going to have to spend time in another Greek word, is that John claims there's really only two ways that you can reject Jesus as the Christ. Look back at verse 5 is where we're going to spend this section. Verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, many of you have heard that verse before, or maybe if you have your Bible open right now, your text says something a little bit different than my text says. Right? In fact, while mine says overcome, yours might say something like comprehend or understand. Yours might say something like the New American Standard Bible, which says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. Okay, a little nuance there, a little different. How about the King James Bible? I get to talk all fancy when I read King James. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. So for some translations, it has to do with comprehending, understanding, how many of you, show of hands, your Bible says something like that? It says to comprehend, to understand it. Okay, a few hands, great. How many of you are, like my translation, it has overcome, or it has some kind of physical idea behind it? Great. Everybody who didn't vote, get your Bible out. Come on, people. Just kidding. No, so which is it? It seems, can these two realities live in the same place? And actually, John chose, for the second time, a very specific Greek, a very specific, uh, ambiguous Greek word. In fact, a scholar I was reading about this verse, he said this, quote, this verse is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Isn't that great? That is my new direction for sermons, just planned ambiguity. Just leave it open for anything. 
I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, so some of you might think, okay, how could, a ver how could one word be so ambiguous? How could it mean to understand something, and how could it mean to overcome something? Those seem to be very different. How can one word have multiple meanings? That doesn't make sense, unless, of course, you're an English speaker, and you go to the Oxford English Dictionary. How many definitions do you think the, word, the verb run has, R-U-N? How many definitions do you think the verb run has? You're wrong. It's 606. 606 different entries for the verb run. It comes right before the word set, S-E-T, which has 546 different entries for its definition. So words can be a little ambiguous. They can have loose meanings attached to them. And I'm not going to bore you with a linguistic study on Greek and this specific Greek word, just know that in verse 5, the word overcome, which is why your translations differ, it can mean a range between to comprehend and understand something or to, to overcome it. Now, immediately, those two things don't seem like they connect, but we actually have an English word that works similarly, and that is the word to master. Think, you can master somebody on the golf course. You can master them on a video game that you're playing. You can have mastery over them, or you could figure them out. You could understand somebody. You could read all of their books, and you're now a master of their content to understand or to overcome. And so the Greek word John uses to mean, could both mean to, uh, to overcome or to understand, and in a way, for John, those are two ways that you could, that people can reject the G Jesus as the Christ. Like you could be overly hostile towards Jesus, just outright reject him, want nothing to do with him, or you could think that you understand him. You could think that you're following him, but you're not really. Now that one is far more prevalent so let's, let's dive into how this plays out. Right. So in one way, we just know people who just reject Jesus as Christ. In fact, they'll reject all kinds of things. But some people will not necessarily reject Jesus as Christ. They may reject Jesus as the ultimate reality. That maybe there's other ways. Maybe there's other realities I can, like the Greeks. There's other ways that you can align yourself with this ultimate reality. Maybe Jesus is one of those. Maybe Jesus is just a good guy. I don't know. And this is actually becoming the default mode for many young people, my generation and younger, right? It's now being put on our shoulders to decide. You get to decide what is morally true, what is morally right, what is morally wrong, and Everybody gets to figure that out for themselves. I read a book by a sociologist named Christian Smith. He's done a lot of research on young Americans, specifically young Americans, on how they develop their morality. Like what is their baseline for what they determine what is right and what is wrong. And I want to present his research as just three broad strokes, right? This isn't definitive. It's not true for everybody. It's not conclusive. But I have seen these three things lived out, both in my own heart, but especially in my circles. And so we need to talk about it. Here are the three. Number one, as he said, young Americans have strong moral feelings. 
Many young people today have a deep concern for moral issues, maybe more than they have in the past. We care deeply for social justice, for things like environmentalism, for, um, for human rights. They believe, young Americans believe, that these things are so important that they should have our utmost attention. That it is now our responsibility to do something about these injustices that we witness. So they have strong moral feelings. Now, Christian Smith notes that these aren't based in any kind of moral framework, right? It's just what they feel. It's just intuitive feeling, and they feel very strongly about it, okay? Strong moral feelings. The second attribute for young Americans is that young Americans tend to be moral relativists. Now, that simply means that they believe truth is subjective, that truth is relative to the individual or it's relative to the culture, and everybody has access to, you probably heard it, your own truth, and it's to each person to decide what is true for them, okay? More relativist, and then the final broad stroke is young people believe that morality, moral issues are self-evident. They don't require uh, justification or explanation, you can just tell what is right and what is wrong at the face front. Now, maybe you can see, maybe you can't, and again, I'm going to pick on this because this is me and my generation, maybe you can see some of the contradictions and the inconsistencies in these just laid out right here. For example, how can something be, how can a truth be self-evident everybody gets to determine what truth is. So if my truth is different than your truth, what is self-evident to me may not be what's self-evident to you, and et cetera, et cetera, all down the line. And I cannot base what is true based on just what I feel. In fact, what I feel is often not aligned with what is true. <laughs> I have to constantly self-evaluate. My wife will often tell me what I believe strongly about is not actually aligned with truth. In fact, true morality is based on reflection, on time, uh, adjusting what I believe and how it aligns with the world. So there's some inconsistencies. Here's my point, and I'll bring it back to our sermon in our text this morning is two things are bred, two ideologies are bred whenever we think this way, whenever we allow this culture. And one is for people who believe this, and one is the reaction against people who believe this. So one is that we fall into a trap. One ideology is we become relativists. So we begin to think that truth is something that I can just find for myself. And if that's true, then nothing is true. Right? If everybody gets to determine what is true, then nothing is actually true. Here's what the most important part. The pendulum swings. And whenever we are interacting with people who are relativists, is we become moralists. and We fall into moralism. It is the idea of an absolute truth, which can also be dangerous. Let me explain what I mean. Moralism can lead to a sense of moral superiority over other people, right? And so what happens is oppression is the end result, okay? So either I will oppress myself 
So I will say I cannot meet, I cannot match this level of standard that I have established for myself. And because I can't match that, then I will, in a sense, oppress myself. I will push myself down. Or, and this is far more likely, is I have set the standard for what is morally true, and I will become judgmental and oppressive towards anybody who does not agree with that standard. We become moralist. So both relativism and moralism are dead ends. They ultimately lead to self-defeating arguments. So what is the answer? What do we do? How, what, where should we be leaning into? And, well, you're at church. <laughs> you, we, uh, we're talking about the gospel and Jesus, so I think it's pretty clear it's called the gospel. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, which doesn't support either relativism or moralism. In fact, if you go anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, to talk about the gospel with somebody, I don't think you could get much better than John chapter 1, right? Let's read it together, starting in verse 12. Now, this is the answer to the rejections. We're moving into our last section here. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, if this tells us anything, it tells us that becoming a child of God is a gift. It's a gift. And we cannot forget the incredible gift that has been given to us, that God is not like a boss that is hovering over us, who demands obedience and submission from us, that there is a a cost-benefit scenario that you do your job, you keep your job. You do the right thing, then you get to hold on to what you have. But instead, we have a personal image of a father who wants a meaningful relationship with his children. You know, Darian, my wife, is a perfect example of a good parent to me. So Arlo is trying out these new things. It's kind of new. I don't know if y'all have heard of them. They're called tantrums. I don't know. He loves these things, loves them. He'll have them over anything. It's like, hey, do you want ice cream? Blow up. Like, I don't know what you want then. Like, do you want to go out to the park? Blow up. His favorite one is the 3 a.m. ones. Like, randomly in the middle of the night, he'll, he'll just have a meltdown and he'll explode. And Darian keeps loving Arlo. I don't. I'll be honest. I hate Arlo at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> but <laughs> that's just me being vulnerable. But Darian loves Arlo when he misbehaves. Not like loves that he does it, but loves him, actively loves him. He's screaming, he's throwing things, and in fact, as his, his anger or emotions, as they intensify, her love for him, I can hear it in her voice, her love for him intensifies. Why? Why does she do that? Why is that even possible? It's because the relationship between Darian and Arlo is not consumer-based. It's not cost-benefit scenario. It is a covenant. It is a committed relationship that regardless of how mad or angry you are, I will still love you. In fact, my love for you will intensify. 
If you have an appointment with the President of the United States and you run towards him, you're probably going to be stopped in some way, right? If you don't have an appointment with the President of the United States and you run towards him, you're probably going to be shot. I don't recommend it. But if you are the President's little boy or little girl, you have full access. Nobody will stop you. Does the Bible have the audacity to claim that we can have that kind of relationship with God, the creator of all reality? If so, that's a gift. It's a gift that should be openly received. And so now, for the third time, John uses a very specific Greek word to tell us how. How is this possible? And he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the fact that God chose to become human and dwell with us, that there's something in that that reveals to us God's true love for us. You see, in the past, people had to go to the temple. They had to go find God, and they had to make themselves clean to be in his presence. Now, God changed the script and said, I'm going to come into your presence. In fact, the Greek word there used for dwelt among us is the Greek word skinu. Everybody say skinu. Say it again, skinu. Yeah, you're all Greek, Greeks now. Congratulations, you made it. Skinu in Greek literally means to pitch a tent. To pitch a tent. Have you ever, who here has gone camping before in a tent? Yeah. There is no privacy in a tent. No privacy. I used to go on a mission trip in the mountains of Mexico. It's like a hundred young adults we go. I could hear conversations about me 10 tents down. Like there is no privacy in a tent. And God says, I am coming down into your midst and I am pitching a tent in your presence. Nothing is going to separate me from you any longer. Like if you want to have access to the Jesus, to God, to the creator of all things, if you want to know how would, you, how would God talk to me? How would he treat me? How would God love me? What would God say to me? God says, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is now pitching a tent in your midst. Christianity answers life's deepest questions and mysteries, and I'll tell you how. Relativism can't prove it has no absolute truth. There is no anchor to hold on to. It's just loose. There's nothing. And moralism, it just becomes my oppressive nature over yours. It's my truth over yours. There can be absolute truth, but we're going to fight to the end to figure out what is that truth. However, when the fullness of God came to dwell among us, and he lived a perfect life, and he absorbed all the sin and the darkness, he provided us a truth that we can hold on to, that Jesus overcame death and that he can save you from it too. And whenever that message is at the heart of the Christian believer, whenever the message of Jesus giving it all for you is at your center, you can't oppress yourself anymore. It's not a standard that you're holding yourself up to that you're never meeting and you have to just push and crush and oppress yourself with because it's a gift that was given to you. You just have to receive it. And when a man dying on a cross for his enemies is at your very heart, you can no longer become an oppressor of other people either. The gospel then becomes 
for everybody. So we have to cling to the absolute truth of the gospel. We have to let it guide us in love, in our grace, in our compassion for all people. Have people been oppressive with the gospel of Jesus? Absolutely. But it's because they thought they thought they were following him. They thought they were following Jesus, but they were really just rejecting him. They thought they had mastered Jesus' message, but really they just lost sight of the cross. So as John opens up this chapter, this gospel for us, he says, this is the light that the world needs. This is it. The world is asking, how do I align myself with the ultimate reality? And John comes in the opening verses and says, you want to do it? That's great. It's found in a person named Jesus. That is the gospel. That is the message John establishes in these opening chapters. And if you are here this morning and you need to align your life with that ultimate reality, I want you to close your eyes. Let's all close our eyes. I want you to say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I want, we want, I want to come before your throne. I want to recognize you as Lord of my life, as Lord of all creation. Father God, I want to believe, help me believe, or I absolutely do believe in your words that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Father, help me believe those words. God, help me align my life with the ultimate reality that's found in the person named Jesus Christ. God, I give my life to you right now. I submit myself to you. I repent of all the things, all the ways I have my sinful flesh has lived out its purposes in my life, and I want to put those things to the side. I want to give my life to you. I want to be clothed in the waters of baptism. I want to repent of all the things I've done wrong. I want to be absorbed into the body of Christ. I want to receive the Holy Spirit. Father God, we give it all to you. Regardless if we have prayed that prayer for the first time, if we have prayed that prayer our entire life, we come to you this morning recognizing you as the ultimate reality in which we align our life. May there be power in the scripture in our life to make changes that need to be changed. We give it all to you, Jesus. In his holy name we pray and the church said, amen.